Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Project is a rebel in the new science revolution aimed at exploring the nature and implications of consciousness in the universe through the fields of quantum, quantum physics and the paranormal. No reality left unchecked. No dogma left unchallenged. Q. Science. Science. And now your host for the Q Science Project, Jill Hansen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Q Science Project on KGRI Digital Broadcasting. I am your host, Jill Hansen, and you can find me right here on KGRIRadio.com every Friday night from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern. That's 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific. Ready to explore the nature of consciousness, perception, and reality through pioneering theories from the brightest minds on the front lines of the new science revolution. Before I get to the task of introducing tonight's guest, I want to preemptively invite all of you to join others from around the globe in the KGRI Live interactive chat room, now called the Listener Lounge. That can be found at kgriradio.com forward slash chat. This is the place to be if you want to be a voice in the global conversation on show topics in real time. I am having a little trouble myself getting into the chat room tonight, so my good friend Bill, who's producing me this evening, is going to be dropping those in Skype. But please do do get those into the chat box in all caps. You can also get your questions to me tonight on Twitter by tagging at QScience, that's Q-P-S-I-E-N-C-E, or using hashtag QPChat on Twitter. I can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jill Hansen. Feel free to get questions for our guests in all three of those places. Cutting through the noise and getting right into the business of tonight's show, I'm going to offer you a highly abridged bio of tonight's guest, perhaps the shortest in Q-Science history, because like you, I simply want to hear his story in his own words, and I'm eager to dive into conversation with this very well-spoken man and make the most of our two hours with him. Tonight, I am excited to have with me John Michael Greer. John Michael is a 32nd degree Freemason, a student of the ancient mysteries, and an award-winning author of more than 45 books. John Michael is here tonight to explore his book, The Secret of the Temple, Earth Energies, Sacred Sacred Geometry, and the Lost Keys of Freemasonry. We're going to use that as a starting off point, but who knows where the conversation will go tonight. His vast knowledge, vast spectrum and base of knowledge at his disposal, the conversation could go anywhere. John Michael, thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. So I was telling you just before the show, and I want to make sure that everyone else hears this, you were scheduled, I believe, in January to be on the show, and something unfortunate came up, and I had to schedule you. You have so many fans out there. There are so many people who are reading your work and listening to your lectures. 
I cannot tell you how many responses I got that, you know, people were, that were disappointed and were excited to be coming back once I had you rescheduled. So I'm very excited that you're here tonight. And I know that many of my listeners are as excited as I am. Well, so, well, let's, let's, let's hope we can put on a good show for them. <laughs> we're going to put a darn good shot into it. So the way, where, where I want to start tonight, um, you know, it, through, Ooh. did you have something to, say, to add right off the bat? <laughs> No. Okay. No. No. Let's lead us. Lead us in. Okay. So obviously, because of that reaction, I know that many of my listeners are familiar with you. But for those of my listeners who may just be tuning into the Hugh Science Project for the first time, or may, this may be their first introduction to you, I was hoping we could start the show by kind of giving a background on how it is that you became interested in what you're interested in and the life that you live today and the topics that you explore. Where did all okay. of that fascination start? Where did that, well, growing up in um, t- typical, typical American suburbia, um, I, some people apparently find that very appealing and interesting. I don't. When I was a kid, it bored me to tears. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the usual sort of story of the time. This, this was in the 60s and the, and the 70s when I, was, when I was a kid. I was born in 62. And so growing up in typical American suburbia, in a, a typical disintegrating middle-class family, all the usual, you know, check boxes uh, filled in, um, I was desperate for anything that would, that would help me believe that the world was not as one-dimensionally boring as the media <laughs> and the school system and uh, the conventional wisdom generally um, w- w- insisted that it had to be. I-, I was into all kinds of strange things from a very young age. I was an expert on werewolf trivia by the age of 10. And before werewolves were cool. Oh. <laughs> 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 and, but I, I mean, I read, I read volumes of Ripley's Believe It or Not. They had volumes of Ripley's Believe It or Not back in those days. Um, the UFO literature, um, all kinds of you know unexplained phenomena, unknown animals, you name it. Um, and of course, also got to develop an interest in occultism. And that that sort of that sort of picked me up and carried me on because, of course, with the occult traditions, it's not just a matter of reading something in a book. You do practices. You learn how to experience strange things, and that that really became kind of the keynote of my work. But of course, it wasn't the only thing. Um, one, I mean, as as I mentioned, we were talking before um, before the show started. Um, one of my little secrets is that I don't own a television. And so I don't have that constant rehashing of the conventional wisdom of the official version of reality going on in my mind. And so watching the gaps sort of widen between the world as I understood it and the world that everyone else seemed to live in um, really, really got me interested in looking, looking at all kinds of odd corners. And so it, things just kind of snowballed from there. I'm not, I'm not really sure quite what happened, but, you know, all of a sudden there I was um, writing, first writing books on uh, medical philosophy and practice, and then writing books on unexplained phenomena, and then writing books on um, the future of industrial civilization that kind of cut across everybody's um, official version of what we were supposed to see in the future. And uh, partly writing books because it's the only job that I've ever had that didn't completely suck. <laughs> um, but so that, that's 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 kind of the process. In the in the middle of this, of course, um, you know, 
pursuing various forms of training and so on. I, I became a Freemason, as you mentioned. I've, yes. I've been been heavily involved in that for a while. I know that some people believe that that makes me an evil space lizard from the constellation Draco or something like that. Um, I, I, my, my tongue is not forked. I do not hiss well. But... <laughs> But it's just it's one of those things. Um, that's kind of as far as as far as what I'm doing now. Um, my my wife Sarah and I we've been married for what thirty three years now, right around there, thirty three, thirty four. Yeah. Um, stories, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that just thank you. Yeah. And but we just we just finished moving from um, a small town in the north central Appalachians, where we've spent eight years, to East Providence, Rhode Island. I'm looking forward to digging into um, some of the resources that are available here. Um, there, there are university libraries not far from here that have some really extensive collections of old magical literature. Um, there's, it's, it's, you know, it was time for a change of pace. And exactly what I'm going to research from here on in is a really interesting question. I, I have not settled it yet. I, I've got I've got various lines of work going, and I'm always interested in in, in what you know whatever whatever contradicts the conventional wisdom and actually seems to have something behind it. But you know we'll see where the scent leads me. So, are you saying that it's going to be a, a fully new direction for you, or are you I don't going know. to? Oh, okay. I don't know yet. Um, certain. Well, no, there there will be some elements of a new direction because there's only so many books you can write on any one subject before you start getting boring. And trust me, if a book bores you to read, it probably bored the the, the author to write. And I'm really bad at finishing a book if it bores me. So um, I've written most of what I expect to write about ceremonial magic. I've written eh, the majority of what I ever expect to write on the future of industrial society. Um, some of the areas of unexplained phenomena that I've written about, I will probably go back to and develop in other ways. But I, you know, not necessarily that that much, not necessarily that many of them. So I'm looking around and saying, okay, what's what's the next direction? What what calls what calls for some writing at this point? So we'll see. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like I mentioned in the intro. You've written 45 books and, you know, they're very different, very different books. So I, for, that's, that's for because I get bored so, easily. Well, but I don't know. I, is it, is it getting bored easily or is it just having that many curiosities? Because that's I would true. see it as just, I mean, I've always been a very, very curious person. And the reason I come to having whatever library of knowledge I have, it's because I have so many varied fascinations and I end up mm-hmm. falling mm-hmm. down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So, and you don't strike me as someone who's just going to randomly pick a subject and just write about it as, you know, um, an academic. No, I, you, you no, I, 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 I sometimes randomly pick subjects to read. Um, that's just, <laughs> but reading you know, and writing, I, those are just Yeah, right. I know absolutely nothing about this. Why don't I go, you know, head for the library, look, look, up, yeah. look up some books on it. And every so often, one of those ends up leading me, as you say, down the rabbit hole. And um, sooner or later, I'm writing a book about it. That wasn't where the, the, the you know the the ostensible topic of tonight's talk came from. That that has that has older roots. But um, several of my books um, really did start with you know I haven't I haven't looked into this. For example, my book on the UFO phenomenon, which got um, got started when I said you know I have not done any serious reading in UFOs yeah. for fifteen years. Let's buckle down and check it out. And by the time I'd finished a course of reading, I was going to hold it. There's something going on here that is not what either of the two sides insist is going on and just went from there. And that is actually one of the books of yours that I want to read and have you back to discuss. <laughs> I, I, but 
you're, you're a brave woman um, because it, con- it contradicts both the um, UFOs must be alien spacecraft and mm-hmm. the UFOs must all be frauds and hoaxes and lies. Right. It, it discards both of those and goes for a completely different explanation. Um, nobody wants to talk about it. Except me. <laughs> hey, there we go. I, I think it's one of my best. I, I honestly think it's one of my best books. But it definitely, it definitely contradicted the conventional wisdom, and so it did not get a lot of attention. Well, and like you, that, that draws me in. So but I, I, do, I do want to kind of rein it back in and start talking about tonight's book sure. because sure. Um, there's so there, – this, this book is a tapestry woven of so many fascinating topics that mm-hmm. I just – you know, I want to make sure that we give it at least part of the time it, it deserves. So, Absolutely. Okay. So, John, the book, The Secret of the Temple, Earth Energies, Sacred Geometries, and or Secret Geometry, and the Lost Keys of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. So one of what seems to be one of the core ideas of this book is temple technology, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Which, when you, when you hear the term, okay, it might draw you in a little bit, but the term itself does not clue you in to how deep and broad this mm-hmm. goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's start with this book and what your path was to writing this book and mm-hmm. becoming interested in, you know, electricity, magnetism, um, all, of, all of these different aspects. Okay, well, I, I think this one really started when I became a Freemason in the year 2001. And there's, I, without going into details that I've promised not to pass on, the, the, there's a lot of, there's, there are initiation rituals in Freemasonry, and they all have to do with, or most of them have to do with one aspect or another of the history of the Temple of Solomon. And there is one thing about the Masonic rituals that a lot of people who aren't Masons don't realize, which is that it's part of our tradition that there is a lost secret. There is the lost word. We don't have the true secrets of Master Mason. What we have is our set of substitute secrets that were put in place until the true secrets could be found again. And that's, that's actually a core element of Masonry, the quest for these lost secrets, for the lost word. So, and of course, obviously, my immediate thought is, oh, cool, a mystery. I'll look into that. <laughs> and so I started poking around and just in sort of a desultory fashion. I was doing some other things at the same time. But a couple of, a couple of really interesting things came up. As I, was, as I was looking at this. And the first was, uh, you know, since there's all this stuff on the Temple of Solomon, okay, let's research the Temple of Solomon. I'll read some books on it. And I ran across, let's see, I think it was in Raphael Patai's book on, on the Temple of Solomon. Um, he quotes all of these passages from the Talmud, which is the, the, the Jewish, not scripture, but commentaries on the scriptures, and that are about how when the Temple was up and running, the, the Holy Land grew much bigger crops than it does now. There, it had some kind of effect on agriculture or fertility. I was going, huh? That doesn't make any kind of sense. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Note it down for future reference. And then following off another tangent, um, of course, I, ended, I did some studying of the Knights Templar. And one of the, the Knights Templar got their name because when they were originally founded in the Holy Land, um, just after the, after the First Crusade, their original headquarters was on the site of the Temple of Solomon. And when they were round, when most of them were rounded up by the King of France, and there was all, all you know, the, the ones who were burned at the stake, the ones who were tortured to death, and so on, one of the accusations was that they worshipped this idol named Baphomet, who made the crops grow. And I'm going, hmm, where did I hear this before? And then I was one of the one of the subjects I've been researching for a very long time are the old legends of the Holy Grail, which actually have a connection to the Knights Templar that's discussed in the book. It's kind of it's kind of ramified, but there are connections in there to the whole Crusading movement, the Knights Templar, and so on. And the holy the whole thing about the Holy Grail is that while the Grail was lost, this whole the land of Logres was desolate. And when the grail was found and the right question asked, all of a sudden it became green and fertile again. I'm going, hmm, I'm catching a theme here. Mm. So that's, that's what started me, started me looking into, okay, is, is this just a Temple of Solomon thing? Is it something about temples generally? And that involved a lot of reading and a lot of study, a lot of talking to people who had, who had knowledge of traditions in places like Japan and India where some elements of these, the old temple cultures still survive, and realizing there is actually this body of, this, this neglected body of lore that's found mm. all across the old world that d- connects in ways that um, don't make immediate sense to our minds, but clearly mm. did to the minds of the ancients, Temple architecture and temple practice with agricultural fertility in the surrounding area. That was the seed for the book. And once, once I got hold of that, was going, hold it. okay, there's, there's a connection here. There is a technology or a technique, some kind of method here that was understood by people who built temples. Not just the Temple of Solomon, temples in India, Shinto shrines in Japan, Greek temples, Egyptian temples, not every temple in the world but temples that were part of a cultural continuum where you can trace it from one to another to another, that they shared this technology. And I, I was able to work out very broadly how it might have come into being, how it spread, and how it was forgotten. And that's what the book and is it's, it's, Yeah, and it's just fascinating to me. So my for first um, kind of... Uh, introduction to a lot of of the different separate topics that come up in your book was mm-hmm. when I was studying cymatics and how cymatics, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if yeah. is those shapes appear in architecture all over the world. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what it is, they just look like pretty little carvings. Mm-hmm. But someone at some point understood what this was and the resonance that it represented and mm-hmm. how that rep- that resonance you know, manifested in a spiritual realm or the connection between the physical and the spiritual. And mm-hmm. it's just it's phenomenal to me how all of these aspects that you talk about in the rituals and in the temples um, 
there are things that we we're all familiar with, like incense. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just kind of, it just, we don't understand the true meaning of it and what it truly is doing. It just seems like a, a ritual that, you know, mm-hmm. is, comes from way back when, and we just do it because we do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's phenomenal how each of those aspects is actually a very, very meaningful mm-hmm. thing and has, has a purpose. It does something. It does something. This is one of the things that people in the modern world don't get about ritual. Ritual is meant to do something. It's a technique. It is a technology. That's true of magical rituals, which um, I'll drop the unfortunate famous definition here. Magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. When you do a magical ritual, you are changing your state of consciousness. And so changing the world as you experience it. What is going on in the old temple technology was not magic. I'm pretty sure it was, it was, it was in effect, a sort of folk physics where people had noticed certain resonant effects that you get in certain ways, probably by trial and error for thousands, over thousands of years until, the, until they had worked out a, a toolkit that pretty reliably got results. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, but we don't know that anymore. We've lost track of the fact that rituals can do things that these ceremonial activities have a purpose and that they link together. So let's talk a little bit about those purpose, the purpose of the ritual. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's also, you know, very fitting and very fascinating to talk about how all that, that knowledge was lost because it's hard to imagine, you know, us in our quote unquote civilized, uh, you know, organized Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Unal society, you would think that there would be some manner of, of that knowledge, especially how meaningful it is to be passed mm-hmm. down. But yeah, let's go ahead and start with. Um, okay, with the. Okay, now what? One of the things I have to stress is that my book is a first reconnaissance. It's a just. It's a my an, an exploration into basically unknown territory, and mm-hmm. there are some big unanswered questions. Yeah. One of the questions that I have at the center of it is the exact nature of the physical effect that's generated by the temple technology. I have two theories, and which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. It could involve both. One of them is terrestrial electricity. Um, the electricity flows through the earth all the time. And when you get a charge of static electricity in certain places um, or a flow of electricity through the soil, it actually... Um, improves the growth of plants. This has been demonstrated by double-blind controlled studies. I cite them in my book. Um, in fact, back before chemical agriculture became quite as popular as it is nowadays in the beginning of the 20th century, electroculture, where people were literally running a, a weak current through the soil, was very, very popular. And people were getting really good results, like 40% improvement in, for, in crop fertility, crop production, um, by, by electrical currents. Now, there's the electrical currents in the soil. And there are ways you can generate and flow it out from a structure, especially if the structure is made in a way that will tend to generate, to to gather and collect a static electric charge. So that's theory number one. Mm -hmm. Theory number two is a little, is subtler, more complex. I'm a little more thinking it's, it's, it's probably, it probably plays a very important role. Um, there's a scientist, an entomologist, an insect scientist named Philip Callahan, who did a lot of research into the, um, the way that moths and other insects communicate and experience the, their surroundings. And, you know, they don't actually use their eyes for that much. Their eyes are useful kind of close up. They actually perceive by way of their antennas in the, in the well, right where the microwave spectrum and the infrared spectrum overlap. And 
they have their antennae have these they have these little wa- these little short you know spikes covered with wax which make them very effective antennae in that in you know for that kind of um, that kind of electromagnetic radiation plants also have spines and in the, of the same length that are well suited to detect the same thing furthermore a lot of volatile organic compounds such as incense but also such as um, the scents of flowers and things like this will actually give off energy in that spectrum when they're stimulated by various other energy sources like sunlight, um, wind, sound, various things like that. So there's this whole world that, that human beings don't perceive directly, that we can't perceive directly because we don't have the sense organs, that insects perceive and plants react to constantly, which is this, this, in this realm where the infrared and the microwave spectrum blend into each other. And... So you have a large resonant chamber made up to fit, you know, made according to certain strict ge- geometrical rules. You're filling it with incense smoke, which is full of volatile organic compounds. You're doing various things with flame and with noise and with and with an action that and and putting it at a place that's going to build an electric charge, which will also tend to make um, to generate discharges. And here, this thing is radiating out in that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. What's it doing to the insects? What's it doing to the plants? Nobody's done the research. Nobody knows. And that's really the great challenge here because nobody's done the necessary scientific research to test a range of these hypotheses. It's just, it's not something, it doesn't interest the the very money-oriented science of our day. Nobody's coughing up billion dollar, you know, million dollar grants or what have you, billion dollar research programs. to something that might, for example, cut into Monsanto's profit margin. So it nobody looks at it. Mm-hmm. So if these if these if these aspects of reality are are mm-hmm. aspects which we typically cannot perceive with our given mm-hmm. physical senses, yeah. how is it? How do you propose that? there were humans from the past who were able to be aware of or at least perceive to some degree or witness, you know, have a level of consciousness to see plants and, and insects around them reacting to something and for them to realize that it was as important as it is to create the structures, to use sick geometry, to use resonant geometry, concealed dimensions of geometry and um, things like incense. Yeah. Um, my, my working guess is that it was a, a process of trial and error over thousands of years. Okay, think, think you're, you're, you're a priestess in some Bronze Age civilization, okay? Um, you, have, you, you accept, like most religious people, that if you please the gods and goddesses, they're going to bring crop fertility. And you notice that this temple over here is doing something. It's, every temple is a little different. That's always true. Mm-hmm. Every temple is a little different. This temple is doing something over here, and their fields are greener than the ones in your village. Okay, You're going to go over there, find out what they're doing, and copy it. And maybe down the road, somebody else is going to try something a little different, and gradually, things get noticed. You know, Here's this standing stone, and all the cows gather around it. That, that actually happens, by the way, in England. You go, into a, you go into a part of England where there's standing stones. If, if the cows can get to it, they will. They're standing right around there munching. That's one of those odd things. But you, you, people start noticing the, the effects. And this, this is something we have to remember. People nowadays tend to think that people in previous civilizations were stupid. 
Okay. Yeah. That's part of our arrogance. That's part of the arrogance of our, cult, our blind, superstitious faith in progress. Um, in fact, they were just as smart as we were, as we are. In some cases, smarter in that they were better at paying attention to their senses. Right. Since they didn't have uh, televisions and the internet filling their minds with, with chatter. Um, so, yeah, you're, especially if your survival depends on good crops, you're going to notice if something seems to improve things. And you're going to copy it. Mm-hmm. See, it, 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 makes the, it makes the earth goddess happy. Okay, clearly, look at how those crops are coming in. Let's duplicate it. That kind of process over thousands and thousands of years um, it's the same way that human beings learned how to breed vegetable varieties. We didn't start out knowing anything about Mendelian genetics. People just started paying attention. Yeah. They noticed what, what worked and what didn't, and they copied what worked or starved. Take your pick. And so in the same way, this, this temple technology would have evolved. Now, there's one other factor, which is, which is quite an interesting one. I mentioned the electrical charges that build up in the ground. Yes. Human beings, or at least a significant minority of human beings, can actually feel a strong electromagnetic concentration of, of, of that, that, what they call telluric current, of the, the electricity running through the earth. Um, something like a third of people will just feel like the, the hair rises on the back of their neck. Mm. And in fact, many, many sacred places around the world are located in places that concentrate right. the earth current like that. So there, it's not even a matter of trial and error. It's, whoa, something funny is going on. I bet the gods are present exactly. here. And, and that's actually what I was going to kind of ask you is, uh-huh. you know, through trial and error, that's kind of a mundane way of coming about mm-hmm. doing something, right? But mm-hmm. I, like you said, our ancestors and people who preceded us are very much like us. They have spiritual experiences. They have, um, you know, mm-hmm. unexplainable connections to this thing beyond the world that we see. And so I'm, I'm curious, and it would actually, you know, I would think that more often than not, mm-hmm. those kinds of things would rather come through those types of, you know, un unexplainable knowings and spiritual experiences and in magic than the mundane, you know, I put this rock here and it did that. And, you know, that's how we're going to do this from now on all the time. Well, I think, I think it's probably a combination of all of the yeah. above because I, I didn't stress the spiritual aspect in the book. Yeah. I wanted to really make a case for, for this as a, sure. as, as a, as a primitive or as a folk technology, not primitive in the sense Absolutely. of Although, But yeah, the thing is people, people figure things out. People <laughs> learn stuff. People tap yeah. in. It's just the way it goes. Yeah. And I just, I just think that it's not an accident that most of these buildings are temples. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So there, there's a spiritual, inherent spiritual mm-hmm. connected aspect of, of mm-hmm. the buildings. So and that, that. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? 
just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thanks. Tells me. But the, 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 yeah, no, the thing, the thing that's, you, that, that's really interesting here is, again, not all temples have this effect. Not all religious buildings have this effect. And you can watch when a culture discovers it. It's usually when they had contact with somebody else who did it. And, and the, the historical process, which we'll get to, by which the secret is lost. Mm-hmm. People were still being you know, very spiritually attuned to things, at least some of them were, after that time. But so there, there's, yes, there's the spiritual dimension, but there's also this pragmatic dimension that can be gained and lost, learned, forgotten. And yeah. it's between that, the, the sort of enduring spirituality and the details of the practice that I think um, this whole thing, that, that makes this thing really, really interesting to me. Okay. Well, then let's talk about that. Let's talk about how all of these rituals and all of these ways of, of doing things and creating and living are lost over time. Okay. Well, on the one hand, you have, you have a real tendency in the revealed religions. Now, I'm going to draw, I should draw a distinction here. Um, there are natural religions. This, this is history of religion speak. Okay. You have natural religions which don't really have a founder. They just sort of grow. Um, think of a lot of the old pagan religions. They don't have a prophet. They don't have a messiah. They're just what we've always done. Um, yeah. those, are tr- those are traditionally called natural religions. Then you have revealed religions where you have a messiah, you have a prophet, you have somebody who tells you the, tells you the, the, the real skinny on whatever it is, and then everyone kind of follows that. And that's, yeah. you know, that's Christianity, that's Islam, that's Buddhism, uh, that's a lot of others. But one of the things that happens when you get revealed religion is that a lot of them become really fixated on books. They're not fixated on the cycles of nature anymore. They're not paying close attention to the world as they experience it. No, they've got, they've got the whole, you know, whichever holy scripture it is. And they fixate on doing it right according to this book. And when you do that, if you've got some kind of tradition that's gotten interwoven into your, your religious practice, which your prophet didn't have to mention, um, it can, you know, somebody can say down the road, that's blasphemy, or, you know, the, you, this is corruption of the true faith. And that's what happened in Christianity. Um, in, in Christianity, during the, mid, during the early Middle Ages, the temple technology got picked up and put into place in a lot of the old churches. And that's where we get all this sacred geometry and all these interesting legends and so on around the Holy Grail and, and the Templars and all, that all tie into agricultural fertility. And then you get to the Reformation. And you get to the Counter-Reformation, which the Catholic response to that, and the Protestants were all saying, all that stuff is popish superstition, and it's a snare of Satan, and all you need to do is read the Bible and pray. And the Catholics were responded to the Reformation by going through a sort of um, series of purges of their own, where they got rid of a lot of their their own heritage from the Middle Ages and tried to make everything according to doctrine and all, all correct and all. And so they threw it out also. And there were little groups here and there that preserved it. 
Now, of course, there were other revealed religions that never, never did it at all. Islam, as far as I know, never adopted the temple tradition at all. This may be why nearly every country that has adopted Islam has turned into a desert. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. North of the Mediterranean, south of the Mediterranean, the climate's almost the same. But north of the Mediterranean, you have medieval Christianity. South of the Mediterranean, is Islam. South of the Mediterranean, it becomes desert. North, it stays green. Something odd is going on here. Um, some, a few branches of Buddhism, especially in Japan, seem to have at least gotten some sort of an acquaintance of it. Generally, Buddhism is very much into existence is illusion. You need to pass into nirvana as fast as possible. Uh, let's not worry about things like crop fertility. And so a lot of the revealed religions never got into it in the first place. Yeah. And as they squeezed out the natural religions, whether just by, you know, by, by preaching or by more violent means, as often happened, um, they, they, they squeezed out the temple tradition in a lot of places. And you would have, at intervals, of course, as the whole idea of, no, no, you have to have a sacred scripture, you have to do everything by the book, that, that got picked up even in some of the surviving natural religions. And so you started having that, sort of, that same by the book. Well, you know, it doesn't say in, our, in this newly minted holy, you know, this particular thing we're now calling a holy book that you should do this, therefore it's a, a snare of whoever. And, and so you end up with a situation where by, seven, by you know, 1700, the last people in the Western world who had any idea of how it operated were a few elderly stonemasons who passed on bits of the secret to the first, um, what are called accepted Freemasons, people who aren't actually stone workers but who join Masons' lodges, but never, but weren't able to pass on the whole secret. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really profoundly sad because here, this is, this is something that could be of immense use today. I'm thinking, you know, for, I mean, over to crop fertility, imagine taking this and, put, and putting, thing, putting structures built to this, these designs in areas where there are natural ecosystems that are under stress. And all of a sudden, mm. you've got that improved fertility radiating through those ecosystems. So we love but, to see. Yeah, yeah. so here's, here's the thing about the secret or secrets, okay? Uh-huh. I've, I love thinking about secrets and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Freemasonry and the Masons have fascinated me for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this, the idea of, you know, these books and the secret has been something I've been thinking about. And I'm curious. So even if a conscious knowledge of the secret or secrets mm-hmm. ends, isn't that secret somehow, um, if it's a truth, doesn't it still exist? And isn't it a, just a matter of um, kind of, uh, I don't know, gaining the correct or higher level of consciousness to understand that truth and the, mm-hmm. the secret will appear? In theory. In yes. theory, yeah. In okay. theory, yes. In practice, it doesn't always work that way. Now, this is another of those places where there's a difference between the spiritual, the, the, the spiritual life on the one hand and some of these practical techniques on the other. Yes. Okay. Because it's certainly true that when you, know, when you raise your consciousness toward the divine, when you orient yourself toward the divine, there, you're going you're to start, you know, whether you use prayer or meditation by whatever, whatever technique works for you, there's going to be a flow of information and guidance. That just happens. And... That's very important and very powerful, but at the same time, if what you're trying to recover is actually a technology, 
is something that had been worked out, not not revealed, but elaborated by people over thousands of years. It may take you a long time. Maybe you can get the core secret, but then, okay, all the details. Um, Here's a way to think about it. Imagine that music was forgotten for some reason. You know, mm-hmm. it became, there was this vast religious purge and everything says, you know, it's horribly evil and satanic to do music because music makes people <laughs> like have sex or so, or right. whatever it is, you know, okay, you know, people get drunk and, and dance and do all kinds of evil things. So therefore we're going to abolish music. And so a thousand years later in somebody in, in prayer catches on to the idea of harmonious sound. They hear yeah. that thing and, oh my God. I see how that would work. And they start tinkering with strings and with, with um, wooden pipes cut to different lengths. Okay, great. They've got the basics. That doesn't mean they can sit down and compose a symphony. That means that probably hundreds of more people over hundreds of years are going to have to slowly regain what's necessary to have things like clarinets and electric guitars and keyboards and... Um, string quartets and rock music and the whole nine yards. There's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done. Once the insight is there, you can build on that. But, you know, we don't just get spoon-fed by the gods, if, if, I, may, if I may express it that way. Um, they, expect us to wor- they expect us to do our share of the work. Which is reasonable, right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah that's, that's what we're here for. It is, it is. That's exactly what we're here for. Okay, all right. So back back to how these technologies become lost because mm-hmm. it's so it's it is very thinking about how conscious our ancestors were how they had the same consciousness we were they were just as aware as we are they were just as mm-hmm. capable if not more capable of certain aspects mm-hmm. to think of, of how something that was so significant can be mm-hmm. lost it's mm-hmm. really difficult to wrap your head around. So part of me, that's because we have, we have a very unusual attitude toward knowledge in our society. Um, We think people nowadays just assume as a matter of course, that knowledge should be spread as widely as possible. Um, We write books for the complete idiot. We write books for dummies. The idea is that everybody should know everything. Now, of course you can't, but you know, the information should be there. Most older cultures didn't have that idea. Most older Mm -hmm. cultures had that idea that you had to earn the right to knowledge. And so very often you had to like go through initiations. This is one one of the ways the Freemasonry kind of echoes the older pattern. You would have to prove yourself. You have to do certain kinds of of, of practice or what have you. You'd receive initiation and then you'd get a chunk of knowledge. If you wanted to become a shoemaker, let's say, you wouldn't just set up, you couldn't get a copy of Shoemaker for Dummies. You'd sign up as an apprentice and you'd spend like seven years as an apprentice and learning all all of the art of making shoes. And then you'd work for another seven years as a journeyman, which meant you were basically an employee and you, you under the supervision of a master shoemaker who w- took you through all, the, all the, the fine points until finally you did what we still call your masterpiece, the piece of work that proved that you were that good. And all the other masters hemmed and hawed and looked over it and made sure all the stitching was right and then slapped you on the back and you got the master's initiation. Then you were a master and could, could hire apprentices. Yeah. And so the idea was that knowledge was knowledge was not free. Knowledge was not naturally available to everyone. You had to earn it. But that, of course, meant it made made it much more vulnerable to being lost. If anything broke those chain, the, the, this chain of transmission, 
if it became if possession of that knowledge became um, religiously suspect, if mm-hmm. the church were, became convinced that if you were you know that anyone who did that was a devil worshiper and should be burned at the stake, yeah, lots of stuff got lost. Okay. Now I do have one question. This is coming from me. We have a few questions coming up from the chat room, but I'll probably wait okay, to the good. second segment the show. Um, So my question is, then what if we were to think of these temples Mm -hmm. as part of their purpose being to embody this knowledge, to be Mm -hmm. a fail safe, that Mm -hmm. that knowledge was Mm -hmm. in existence and just waiting for the right person with Mm -hmm. the right, you know, foundation Mm -hmm. of either curiosity or knowledge or level of consciousness to come along and recognize what they were looking at or what they were experiencing? I think that's a useful thing to have in mind. They will, the thing is, they will have been made with both, both as to preserve the knowledge and to conceal the knowledge. Because again, yes. there's that idea that knowledge isn't free for the taking. So yeah, the thing is, I'm pretty convinced, for example, as I argue in the book, that Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland was built specifically yeah. as, a, as, a, as a preservation of that knowledge, as an embodiment of the old temple tradition, perhaps the last one ever built. And certainly some of the great medieval cathedrals, as well as some of the ancient, the temples of the ancient world, also were built. Certainly they embodied it in their forms and in what we know of their practices. Um, there's a lot of information there. It, it, one of the, again, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to encourage people to do the necessary digging. Um, there are vast numbers of medieval records and uh, ancient records around the world that... Um, I have never seen many of them in languages I don't know. And my hope was to get enough people interested to start poking around, mm-hmm. looking at things that they might know. You know, if, a, if, if somebody happens to know medieval German, let's say, and does some digging around in the medieval German grail legends, which there are quite a few, or in the records of the, te- of the, uh, the Templar order in Germany, or of old the old Germanic temple traditions from back before the Christians arrived. There's a lot of stuff in there that might be, might be very useful, that might actually reveal details. It's even possible that somewhere, in some language, there is a, a, at, least a, at least a rough account of the technology written by someone right. who uh, worked. Um, and the only way I figured that that, 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 would, that would ever come to light is if I got the book out there and got people, got people sufficiently interested that they would start looking. And now, have you received that, notification from anyone who that, took that, that call to action and with it? Oh, yeah. There, there's been some interest. Um, there are people, a lot of people are basically, that, that I've heard have gone, okay, I have a lot of preliminary. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Reading to do before I can even contribute to this. Because they're going, okay, you know, you, you're, you're referencing this and this and this and this and this and this and this. That's about two years reading. <laughs> and it is. It's not, it's not, you know, seriously, this is, this is like studying any other field of knowledge. It's like, it's like studying archaeology or studying of the history of a, of, of, of a vanished civilization or something. There's a lot to learn. And so I have heard from people, uh, some of them are brother masons, some of them are, are outside the craft who are really interested by this and are looking into it and, you know, we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. One of the th- one of the things, though, and this is this is one of the very important hints that I got from the Grail legends, actually. Okay. One one of the things about all the stories of the Holy Grail is really rather odd. When when the when the knights rode out to seek the Grail, okay, they were all heading in all kinds of different directions across all kinds of you know wild and desolate country, and the goal was to find the Grail Castle. Nobody knew where it was. But if you found the Grail Castle, and they and you know they let you in, and they would perform a ceremony in total silence, a ceremony that involved the Grail, and if at that moment you asked the right question, then the Grail would then then basically you you've done it. The Grail is restored to the to the kingdom of Logres. Fertility reigns. The Fisher King is healed. Everything's great. If you don't ask the question. You know, you, you, they finish the ceremony, they serve dinner, they put you to bed, you wake up in the morning in a desolate, empty place and have no idea where the castle was, and you have to start all over again. Now, here's the thing. This is a lot, it's a nice metaphor for what's going on here. If you ask the right questions, it's obvious that something's going on here. If you say, so why is there all this stuff on agricultural fertility related to temples? Bingo. You've just started on your search for the grail. Mm-hmm. And it is very much a matter of as, to, trying to figure out what's the right question. What, what, yeah. how, can we, how can we ask questions of the past, of these legends, of these traditions and teachings that will allow them to tell us what they have to say? Because they won't speak for themselves. No, they, they ask. Absolutely. Yes. And I think you brought up the term metaphor, and I think that's, a per, I mean, that's perfect. Because I think that in our culture, especially here in the West, we're taught to think very concretely and we're, we're taught to think, you know, along certain parameters and structures and inside the box, really. When a lot of, a lot of these, you know, uh, meditations and words and even shapes are, you know, we take them very literally when they're metaphors. Real knowledge comes from the metaphor Mm -hmm, that -hmm. we're just not seeing because we're looking at it for what we think it is. Mm -hmm. You know, this is is great because right now, um, I and and another writer, um, Mark Mikituk, who's a a translator, we're we're finishing up a translation of a very important French metaphysical text from the late 19th century. And one of the things that this, 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 uh, let's see, a fundamental treatise of occult science by Papus. And one of the things that Papus is just all over is you've got to learn to think in analogies. You've got to learn to think in metaphor to understand that this is symbol. Yes. Because he, he's just whapping people over the head with this, and he has to. Because <laughs> if, you take these, no, if you take these things literally, they're stupid. If you take them, if you understand there's, there's that it's no a metaphor. Yeah. yeah. 
If you yeah. understand what they're saying, then all of a sudden your eyes pop open and you're going, holy, <clears throat> or yeah. something, you know, what have you. Right. But yeah, then, then, then the penny drops. Exactly. And, and I think that part of that secret is understanding. I mean, maybe the first step towards any secret is understanding mm-hmm. that what you are seeing is a metaphor, but what does it mm-hmm. mean? And what, 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 is, what are the other yeah. layers of it? What is the next mm-hmm. layer of this metaphor? It, yeah. It's multi-layered. All of it's multi-layered. And that's and that's that's very crucial. One of the things that causes people to run off the rails most dramatically in any kind of esoteric study is when they get something like this and they think, okay, it has a meaning, and they grab onto one meaning, yes. and that's, and they they're convinced that's the meaning and that's my meaning and I own it. I mean that that that's but just. They get stuck on a single meaning, and very often these things have layer upon layer upon layer, getting deeper and deeper and more yeah. and more recondite as you proceed. They are. And just, I just want to recount an experience that I had with oh, this very thing. So I, I had a friend who I you know, had for a very brief period, but we were having a discussion. He was an astrologer, and his mm-hmm. em, you know, emphasis was on, um, on the Bible, which you know, I, I didn't grow up. Religion was kind of forced on me as a child, and I had, didn't really have any real interest in it. However, mm-hmm. we had an amazing conversation, mm-hmm. and going into the layers of metaphor and how many different layers of consciousness there are mm-hmm. and how you have to be at certain levels to understand the depth mm-hmm. of metaphor – he would take the same passage of the Bible, read it to me, and explain it in, you know, kind of lower consciousness terms, reread the same thing, mm-hmm. talk about it in an, another letter, lever, uh, layer of metaphor, and then again, and he would explain, he, I think he explained the same passage to me in six different ways from mm-hmm. six different mm-hmm. layers of consciousness, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, was, it blew my mind and once you see things like that it changes everything because from literally that conversation forward now i see everything in my life as a metaphor mm-hmm. and i look for you know okay where where's the clue for the next higher level of consciousness yeah. that this metaphor yeah. is trying to bring into my life yeah once yeah, you go from well, once you go from what what is this to what does this mean yes and what else exactly does this mean? yeah then exactly that's, and what yeah, can then it mean then you've popped yourself out of of, of a very yeah. serious trap, and Absolutely. you've actually started you've it's actually started to experience things on it. And of course, one of the one of the risks here is that some some of those meanings can be very whimsical. Some yes. I, I'm thinking of the um, let's see, do you, you um, Lewis Carroll did a poem. This uh, Lewis Carroll of Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. fame did a poem called "The Hunting of the Snark." which is exceptionally funny and very goofy. And for some reason, people have convinced themselves that he must have had a secret meaning. Now, he, he might have. But I've read discussions of the hunting of the snark by economists who think it's the secret meaning is the business cycle. Oh, wow. <laughs> can you use it that way? No doubt. Is that what Lewis Carroll had in mind? Almost certainly not. Um, so, you know, th- there's, there, there's a flip side to this, which is that you can run off the rails. I and think you, you, can. You, can be, you can become convinced that, that the, you know, the, the actual secret con- concealed in the legend of the Holy Grail is a recipe for macaroni and cheese. You can probably make that argument. <laughs> I did not. I've not heard that one. I love that, though. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think also um, really critical here is 
non-attachment to what yeah. you think, yeah. non-attachment to, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, then you leave don't, yourself closed off don't, to yeah. Don't don't own it. Evolution don't. of of consciousness, yeah. right? Exactly. You don't don't own it. Don't don't let yes. you, don't get your ego anchored into it because then you will simply make a fool of yourself. <laughs> well, and you just won't make you you will not evolve, which no. I think is even more important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is, so, there are people who can handle the thought of not evolving, but I don't know anybody who looks forward well, to possibly okay. make a fool of themselves. So that's. Okay, you're right. Okay, so I'm not that person, but I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Um, (laughs) Now, I'm curious. Now, being a Mason... Is is this mm-hmm. and, and again, you know, I apologize if I step on ground where I'm asking bigger questions than you can answer. No, no, you know, no, that, for that, the and sake that's of fine. secrecy. As you're, since you're not a Mason, you're not subject to any of the promises I've made. You can ask anything. If you, if I don't want to answer it, I won't. Fantastic. That's all I need to know. And this, I don't think this is even a really big question. But mm-hmm. we're on the top of metaphor, and I'm I'm curious whether or not metaphor plays a big role in the rituals of Freemasonry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, symbolism, analogy, it's all symbolism. In fact, um, there are some levels of the metaphor that are actually public. Um, the United Grand Lodge of England, which is the oldest Masonic Grand Lodge in the world and the one that everyone else basically turns to look at and say, okay, if they say it's okay, it's okay. They say um, the Masonry is a symbol of morality ex- or is a system of morality expressed in symbols. And that's one level. One level of I masonry, all of all of these Masonic symbols, all these rituals, they teach eth- lessons in ethics. And that's really important because, you know, in, in every spiritual path, there's an ethical dimension you've got to tackle first. Right. Okay. And, you know, you've got to get your life straightened out. Then you can go on to the next step. Now, do they, does the United Grand Lodge of England talk about a next step? No, they do not. But um, that's... <laughs> That's what you would expect. Yeah, yeah, and and again, you're a thirty second degree. So, mm-hmm. and again, I apologize if this is overstepping. But have you have you is your experience through having worked your way through those different levels of of you know your experience as a mason? Um, do you watch? Are you able to watch these metaphors morph through oh, each yeah. level? Yeah, oh, that's so yeah. fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, I, I should say one thing about people, the 32nd degree is, is less impressive than it sounds. Okay. But this, masonry is complicated. Masonry is, is way, way more complicated than it, than it really needs to be. But, you know, we have, we have our history. And there are the three basic degrees of masonry that everyone has. First, second, third, enter, apprentice, fellow, craft, master, mason. If you're a master mason, you're a mason. You have, you have the core of the secret, whether you know it or not. All the other degrees are ways of commenting on or bringing out something that's included in the Master Mason degree. And so there are two basic courses in, in the United States, it varies elsewhere, of, of degrees that you can go beyond the, or, you know, that, 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 go, that are, are add-on to on top of the Master Mason degree. There's the York Rite, which has 10 degrees, and there's the Scottish Rite, which has, uh, what is it, 29 degrees on top of the, the, those basic three. And mm-hmm. they actually have some, some rituals in common. They have a lot of metaphors and symbols in common. Um, I've actually done both. A lot of Masons do. Um, wow. I like ritual. I, I like rituals. I like I like receiving initiations. I like conferring initiations. It's a lot of fun and there's a lot to learn from it. So I've kind of been a bit kind of an initiation junkie. 
Um, and yeah, very often as you go in either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite, you can watch how the how the designers of the ritual back in the day have taken a symbol and then reworked it yeah. in the last degree. And then you go on two more degrees and then it appears in a different form. And very often, nothing is said about that. They just put the symbol out there and see if you notice. That is so fascinating. <laughs> it's great stuff. It, yeah, I mean, that opens up a whole can of worms for me. <laughs> but uh, this is actually a really great spot to, to go into a break. So everyone, we are at the half and need to head into a brief break, but do stick around for more of tonight's exploration of the reality of things with guest John Michael Greer. You are listening to your contact for the best and alternative UFO and paranormal talk radio on the planet, kgraradio.com. Please stay with us. Do you or a loved one suffer migraine headaches? Listen to what scientist Kurt Hendricks has to say. 35 million people in the United States suffer with debilitating migraines. If you or a loved one are one of them, you need to know about MigRelief. Hi, I'm Kurt Hendricks, the scientist that formulated and patented the MigRelief migraine formula. MigRelief is a non-prescription dietary supplement recommended by neurologists, pharmacists, and pediatricians to address nutritional deficiencies in both adults and children over two with migraines. Try MigRelief for three months and see the powerful difference it can make in your life or get your money back, no questions asked. Go to MIG911.com or call 800-MIG-7354. You can change your life today. So if you suffer from migraines, don't wait. Call 800-MIG-7354. That's 800-MIG-7354 or visit MIG911.com. For the thousands of wounded warriors returning from battle, Wounded Warrior Project has developed the Warriors to Work program, a career counseling service that helps wounded warriors translate their military experience to a civilian job. These extraordinary men and women bring more than just teamwork and inspiration to the workplace. They bring proven world-class job skills. And to ensure proper placement, Wounded Warrior Project works with employers to find just the right job fit. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talented. Skilled. And eager to get back to work. You have the opportunity to hire a seasoned veteran. Contact Wounded Warrior Project at findwwp.org. Welcome home, the brave. Our world is a world of mysteries. Strange disappearances, unusual happenings, mysterious phenomena. And this November, 
You can learn about the greatest mysteries of our time by joining us on the Mysteries Cruise. Enjoy several days at sea and attend exclusive private lectures with leading personalities like researcher Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of more than 49 books, including The Gin Connection, podcaster Jim Harold, host of The Paranormal Podcast, and writer and researcher Micah Hanks of The Graylian Report. Set sail this November 8th through the 17th, 2017, aboard the Crown Princess and sail with us into the heart of mystery. Make your reservations before time runs out by visiting HolidayMakerTravel.com today or reserve by phone at 877-642-4308. That number again is 877-642-4308. The mysteries of our time await you. Visit MysteriesCruise.com. You're listening to the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Station, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Buren, Arkansas. Welcome back to Friday Night Live on KGRA Digital Broadcasting at KGRARadio.com. I am Jill Hansen, host of the Q Science Project, which comes to you every Friday night from 10 p.m. midnight Eastern, bringing you the planet's most progressive perspectives on the nature of consciousness, perception, and reality. Tonight, our guest is John Michael Greer, who is a 32nd degree Freemason and award-winning author. This is definitely a conversation you'll want to be in on, so tonight, please get your topic-relevant questions for John Michael to me, either via Twitter, you can either tag at uh, QScience, that's Q-P-S-I-E-N-C-E, or you can use hashtag QPChat on Twitter. You can also hit me up via Facebook tonight. That's facebook.com forward slash Jill Hansen. And then also we would love to see you in the KGRA Listener Lounge. That can be found at kgraradio.com forward slash chat. And if you do, if you are in the chat room tonight and you have a question for John Michael, please do get that into the chat box in all caps. So, John Michael, um, mm-hmm. before we get into a topic which would kind of get us reeling into other directions and we just completely you know, don't answer the questions that are coming through the chat room. I'm going to start with that. So yeah, let's, let's go for that. The first, let, let's do that because <laughs> who knows where they're going to lead. Um, so the first question is, um, what do you know about the Georgia Guidestones? Um, I have not seen them. Um, I have haven't I have actually haven't been down to Georgia. Um, I know basically what everyone else knows about them that they were you know they they were paid for by somebody and um, <laughs> supposedly include well we don't know he we don't know. Forget, we don't know no um, he left he left a transparent alias behind and had a construction firm put these big granite things up and it has a bunch of um, purported rules to you know for for future civilizations um should there you know should ours fall to bits um it's an interesting riddle there are a lot of riddles like that in the world and as far as i know um that was not done from within freemason or if it was nobody's talking about it oh interesting okay now to kind of get us off course (laughs) what other things like this are there in the world I'm, i'm wondering if there's any that i don't know of um, well, specifically, like, I mean, ident- identical to the Georgia Guidestones? Well, no, no, there's, I see no, in, there, in respect that something that's very there mysterious. Are sta- there, are standing, there are standing stones and strange monuments all over the planet. Um, okay. Some of them are ancient, some of them are modern. Um, there are people build strange things for strange purposes all over the place. And... Um, yeah. You know, some of them some of them attract attention, and everyone knows about them. I'm thinking some of them have kind of faded 
I mean, there's the Coral Castle down in Florida. The, I forget the name of the guy who built it yes. using no technology known to anybody to move these immense blocks of coral. Um, there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that out there. Um, actually, back in the day, we were talking very early about my, my early interest in the unexplained. You used to be able to get books that were full of this kind of stuff. And um, I wish somebody would bring those out again. They were a lot of fun. I think, yeah, there were quite, I used to spend my younger years kind of on a couch in a library reading all of them. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that was me. I was like between six and ten, I think. I was just camped mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so the next question, um, in your studies, have you ever experienced anything that could be described as, quote, cold energy, unquote? Well, it depends very much on what you mean by that. Um, um there are people who, I mean, there are people who talk about that in terms of a a psychic or spiritual experience. We talk about, you know, energy. Oh, it's a, it, again, it's a metaphor. The psychic energy, things like that. And there's some that's that's warm. There's some that's cold. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about physical energy, the kind of thing that would show up on a voltmeter and so on, um, not under that name. It would not surprise me if there were, I mean, we, we know the world is more complex than, than anybody currently understands. And it would not surprise me at all if there were various strange forms of energy with um, unusual effects on temperature and so on. But I don't happen to know about that specifically. Okay. You already know more about that than I do. So. <laughs> and this is, this is the thing. There, there's more, there are more mysteries in the world than anybody can even know the existence of, much less have to talk about it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. We're, we're cavemen. We know that. I mean, uh, we know that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, the next, and I think actually the last question for now, um, this one comes in from Blue Orb, and the question is, is there an existing portion of culture that practices magic? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that we're talking about um, Freemasonry. The Mace. Okay. Um, that that it's possible. I'll just generally every culture in the world, every culture throughout history has practiced magic. That includes ours. There are probably to judge by sales of books in America today, there are upwards of a million people practicing magic on a regular basis. I'm yes. one of them. Okay. That's just. Are there Masons who practice magic? Yes. I've known a number of them. Obviously, I'm a Mason. I practice magic. That makes you know that makes one. I know quite a few others. It's not explicitly part of the Masonic craft. Um, there are complex historical reasons why a lot of people who are a lot of men who are interested in magic end up getting involved in Masonry. If you know if that if that's something that if they qualify, because there are certain traditional qualifications and so on. But. Um, if you go, if you get involved in masonry, hoping to find, uh, you know, the occult secrets of the ages, you're probably not going to find them there. You may find a lot. You're going to meet some really neat people. You're going to learn. You're going to go through some really beautiful rituals from which you can learn a lot about life. If you proceed to then go and study the esoteric dimensions of those rituals, you can learn some pretty profound stuff. But you're going to do the work yourself. Um, there are a lot of other magical orders out there that there are organizations that actually do teach magic as such. And you, if that's your primary focus, you'd be better off going with one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, so uh, in and around that, so talking mm-hmm. about ritual, okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if a lot of people, like they see ritual and they assume that that, that there's some sort of, you know, magical overtones to that or, 
if I mean, going back to we're talking about these processes around these these temples, you know, mm-hmm. um, the very base book, is there potentially some magical overtones just because it is a ritual? Mm-hmm. Well, and a level yeah. of consciousness which yeah. arises while you're doing the ritual, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Again. I like I like the unfortunate definition. Magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Ritual is a major tool for doing that. Yes. If you go through a Masonic initiation, you pay attention, and it's and you're at all open, at all receptive to what it's trying to communicate. It's going to change your consciousness, not in any particularly spooky way, but mm-hmm. you're, it's going to have an effect. Um, most rituals are meant to do that unless they've turned into empty formalities. I mean, very right. few people get into a get into any kind of profound state of consciousness going through their graduation ceremony at high school. Right. And that empty formality, that is that is a perfect term for what I was trying to convey earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people see such rituals as empty formality. That's just mm-hmm. like a tradition that's carried on because we did, you know, they did it yeah. and then they did it and yeah, yeah, yeah. we've got to do it too. Mm-hmm. Now, and to some extent, they're right, because a lot of the rituals in our culture have become that. Um, that includes a lot of rituals done at religious organizations. Um, I have been to a lot of churches in my time and sat through some really depressingly bad ceremonies. Um, <laughs> and just, you know, we're, you know, I, I, just, as I mentioned, I'm a ritual junkie, okay? I enjoy ritual. I like it as a, you know, as a performing art as well as, as well as other things. And I'm watching, I'm sitting here, you know, in a back pew going, you know, if you set out to make this dull, you couldn't have done a better job. There's a lot of people who just, a lot of people who's, who are just going through the motions when it comes to ritual. And that's really sad. Because it can be made very moving, and it doesn't take that much work. You just have to believe in what you're doing and, to, and, to, and care about what you're doing. Right. But so much of it has, to, has become empty formalities that, yeah, you know, people nowadays, are, it's, it's not, they're not completely mistaken. They're only in saying, well, this is empty formality. Their only mistake is, is in not realizing that there was something there once. Yes, yes, exactly. Even whether, whatever that thing was, it may be lost it to mm-hmm. the consciousness, but yes, yeah. exactly. And I think that's true for, for all ceremony and ritual is at one time it was a very powerful thing mm-hmm. when people understood what each, you know, each aspect and each facet mm-hmm. of ritual or ceremony meant. Mm-hmm. But over time it does, it just becomes like a mechanical thing you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of yeah. the real, one of the, one of the huge advantages of, of the magical training that I've had down through the years in several different places is that it really, it focuses in, in any, any, in any good magical lodge, any school of the mysteries, you're going to get that kind of basic step-by-step training where you break down the ritual into its individual pieces and say, okay, what does this mean? What is this symbol? What is it doing? Yeah. Why are you doing this action? What does this word mean that you're saying? And so you take it all the way apart and then put it back together and it becomes something that's alive. And yes. so one of the reasons that, um, honestly, I, I think that one of the reasons that so many people in the mainstream churches go, magic, oh, it's evil, it's evil, is that magicians are, you know, better at ritual than they are. <laughs> it is that you really think Seriously. And, we, and we're sitting here going, come on, man, you could do a decent, you could actually make that interesting if you wanted to. And of course, so the minister is going to bristle. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. So speaking of magic and, and the, you know, the purveying of magical knowledge, um, being, you know, being who you are and doing what you do, what is, what do you feel is the difference between being 
handed magical knowledge, like having a teacher and having them kind of, you know, note by note or spell by spell, mm-hmm. tell you what has to be done and what it means versus the way it sounds like Freemasonry works where you go through a ritual and there are nuances. And if you pick up on it, mm-hmm. then you've proven yourself and you're initiated to the next level. Mm-hmm. So the there's, you know, it's two different routes um, to initiate. I would say it's two ends of the spectrum because okay. there's a lot in between. It's very, very common for um, magical schools of various kinds to do a certain amount of public teaching Mm-hmm. And to in, to drop hints, and it's the people who pick up the hints and you actually want as students. Exactly. Because, okay. And the other thing you do is ask is ask people to do solitary practice, to yes. put put in half an hour a day doing a simple ritual and some meditation. That will chase off ninety percent of your potential students because they want to sit back and bask in the glow of being big bad. Who do you know magicians? They don't actually want to do the work. Right. And exactly. Every serious occultist I have ever met has, you know, we, we, we've, we've said, I mean, I've met a lot of them, but we've all sat around saying, yeah, do the work. If you just do the work, you'll get amazing things, but most people won't. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's baffling. I, you know, uh, it probably shouldn't be, but, but it, it's kind of, it's, it's really sad. It's really sad. It is sad, people. however. Uh-huh. However, it makes that knowledge very valuable because not everybody yeah. has it or will have it, you know? Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. But um, so a lot, of, a lot of schools include some kind of what, what sometimes jokingly is called a flake filter. Okay. It's a filter, <laughs> it's a filter to make the flakes bounce off and go somewhere else. Sure. And you want that, right? To, yeah. Expecting <laughs> them to do some work and, you know, seeing if they actually get the point of, of this and that. Those are, those are common flight filters. And so most, most schools do that. But exactly how much tuition you get in the interval, um, that again, that varies very much from school to school, from tradition to tradition. There are some there where you do get that almost moment by moment, but not that many. And there are some that do like Freemasonry and just you know, run the thing past you and do you ask the right questions, but not that many. Most of them are in the middle. Most of them combine giving a certain amount of, of mentorship and expecting you to do a fair amount of the work yourself. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely not everyone is, is willing to do that. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you mind if we switch gears just a little bit and talk about oh, druid? Since sure, sure, sure. That, so that is something, you know, again, that interests me and has interested me for a very long time. And I'm, I'm very curious also, you, you had talked about or brought up the fact that things like Freemasonry, and now we're talking about Druidry, these, these things have a certain reputation. Mm-hmm. And you being in them and pretty immersed, I don't know how, you know, aware you are of, you know, I'm, I mean, there's a spectrum of reputations, right? Oh, yeah. But the darkness that surrounds. Oh, these, these it's things. scary. Yes, yeah. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah, Freemasons, so, Freemasons yeah, are actually evil you know, lizards from the societies. Conflation Draco and Druids totally. barbecue Absolutely. Christian baby babies from blah, 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 blah. Yes. So what's your recipe for barbecue sauce? <laughs> no. um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm curious, first of all, what was your experience and level of experience as a Druid? And, mm-hmm. you know, what is your perception of of, you know, external perception from the inside. 
Okay. Um, now, I've, I've, been, I've been heavily involved um, in Druidry since the early 1990s. Um, I have completed the, the full course of study in three different Druid orders. Unlike many d- denominations, Druid orders tend to encourage multiple memberships. Um, so I have, uh, in the Order of Bards, Ovids, and Druids, and the Reformed Druids in North America, and the, the Ancient Order of Druids in America, all, all three of those, I've completed the course of study. I served 12 years as the head of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. Um, I finally retired after in, in the, at the, what was it, winter solstice of 2012. And 2015. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's getting it's getting late. I'm going to test you on this later, so you better figure that out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, I did I did I did my 12 years in, in the in the big chair, and I'm currently technically an archdruid emeritus. That title in 350 will get you a cup of coffee, but it sounds cool. Um, so I've I've really. I've really put a, a great deal of focus into Druidry simply because it has the focus on nature, which is yes. important to me personally. I, 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 I like my magical spirituality to come with a lot of ecology and a lot of, a lot of na- reverence for nature, and, and Druidry does that. Um, the attitudes toward Druidry that I've experienced on the part of people outside um, vary depending on a number of factors. Of course, there are people in some of the mainstream religions who, yeah, are going, you, you barbecue babies or what have you. Um, do you remember back in the day when the, all, all, the, all the old television commercials for soap would always be talking about how bad brand X is? Sure. Does, Shampoo you know, is that. Yeah, you know, I do, yeah, brand, I do. the horrors of brand X, you know, it won't get your clothes clean. <laughs> well, Drew, every, every one of the mainstream religions te- treats all other religions as brand X. Yeah. They try to boost themselves up by running other people down. It's not a good plan. And it certainly does not renown to their credit, but it's a very common habit. And so, yeah, they, 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 they badmouth they, they druids because that makes them feel better about their own faith. And especially when their faith has its problems, as some of these do, um, you know, it's very convenient to talk about the supposed evils of the druids rather than to actually grapple with the problems in your own church. Um, but actually, to an astonishing degree, the reactions that I get when I talk about being a druid, about being, you know, having druidry as my religion, people are very positive about it. They're yeah. like, oh, you, you, you like your, your reverence nature, don't you? I go, yeah. I, I, you know, we, we, we revere the divine as manifest in, in the world of nature. And everyone's going, okay, I, I can get that. So I've actually had very, very little difficulty with that, um, other than you know, a certain number of religious bigots. Um, even I have, I have good friends who are devout Christians. I have good friends who are members of many other religions, and we all we all pretty much get along. They they get the fact that my religion may not be theirs, but we share a lot of values in common. And yeah. it's, you know, I'm I'm not a threat to them, and I'm not going to barbecue their babies or anything. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, and they're not going to burn me at the Keep stake. <laughs> Wow, what symbiosis you guys have going on? Oh no, there, there, there's, it, it, it is it has happened. It has happened on a, on a couple of occasions. I've had you know one of the one of the religious bigots I mentioned saying, "You you you, know, you druids used to practice human sacrifice," and since the people who do this always call themselves Christians, I don't know um, how they whether they fit the definition in any other sense. Um, I would say, yeah, you used to burn Jews and witches at the right. stake. We stopped a thousand years before you did. And then right. usually shuts them down pretty quickly. Yeah, there's not much to say after that. <laughs> exactly. Not much to say. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, honestly, as far as I can tell, because, and again, you know, I grew up in a a household where we didn't really observe religion, but then there was a period of time where it became, you know, like we need to be good people. So we need to go to church. Uh (laughs) And I, that was, I was like oil and water. I'm like, no, I, that doesn't, you know, resonate with Uh me. Uh I'm feeling like my free will is being trampled upon here. But anyway, so what I've come to understand Mm-hmm. Because I've practiced magic for many years myself. Mm-hmm. And the difference that I see is that certain religions frown upon being, you know, the individuals being empowered. Mm-hmm. So you have someone, you know, someone that people within a religion look to for answers and the answers must come from them. They say mm-hmm. what's right and what's wrong. You're not taught to think for yourself. Um, you're not generally, generally empowered. However, earth religions mm-hmm. teach you that the power is within you. That mm-hmm. you are God, in a sense. And I think that's really frightening for a lot of people, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. amount of power. What do you think? Well, I think it's partly that. The thing is, I also know people who belong to, um, for example, who, who are Christians, for whom the idea of listening to some jerk in a pulpit telling them how to vote oh, no. and how to live their lives, uh, you know, they have absolutely no time for that. Yes. Their, their decisions are made in prayer. It's them. And God. Exactly. And the two of them are sitting down and talking together. I have immense respect for that. Yeah. There's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that kind of religion. It's when you're giving your free will over, free will over to another human being that you're being, you're, you're being ripped off. And those are the people and, I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. The, oh, yeah. And I, I know the yeah, type. And it's not. It's I not. And, this, and the thing is, unfortunately, there's some of that here and there in every religion. Yes. Inclu- you know, every religion, including mine, you get, you get situations like that. Um, so far, we've been fairly good at kind of uh, backing away and just passing the word and don't bother with the, you know, you, you probably don't want to um, work with this teacher as he does this, this, and this, and that's the end of that. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a normal human problem. Um, yeah, then the thing is, power is scary. It, to a lot of people, I think it is. I think it is, power- yeah. Power, but but power is scary because it means you it means you have responsibility. It means it's on no one else's head. Mm-hmm. What happens to you? Obviously, you know we're we're not omnipotent. None, not one of us can. I, I I hear lots of people who insist. Well, you know I can create anything I want to in my own reality. And I'm saying, okay, let's see. And <laughs> sometimes they do a fairly good job, and sometimes they don't. And so, yeah, you know, there, this, this is, I, I, I get into trouble with some people who, who have gotten into kind of the far end of certain kinds of new age ideas by pointing out the universe also has limits. We also have limits. And, and those are mm. good things. You know, it's the, the, chair, the chair you're sitting on is limiting your backside from bouncing off the floor. Okay. Right. Lim, lim, your bones limit your capacity to fall into a, into a you know, of a, a mess on the, on, you know, that's uh, limit, limit and power balance each other. But yeah, you can, then you can, you can go, you can frankly go wacko either way. Um, but yeah, when you're yeah. giving all your, yeah, when you're giving all your own power to, to somebody, you know, somebody up in the pulpit or somebody in the political sphere or anybody. Right. And I think it all goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, as far as, you know, keeping your assumptions in check, keeping mm-hmm. your ego in check, mm-hmm. you know, 
letting things flow rather than holding desperately onto things as truths or, you know, absolutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Another thing I was wondering is how your life in Druidry and um, as a Mason inform each other. Um, that's, that's actually an interesting question because a lot of Druids, a lot of male Druids down through the years have been Freemasons. Um, the Druid, the modern Druid movement really got on its feet again about 300 years ago. Um, there were scraps of lore and tradition passed on from ancient times, we, we believe, but the, the oldest organizations we know of were founded in the, in the early, in the early 18th century. And so a lot of those same people ended up, the, the, well, the, man, the men among them, of course, ended up joining um, Freemasonry. So there's a lot of back and forth there. I know that um, on the one hand, being a Mason, if, if, you are, if you're in a lodge of any quality at all, I've been in some really, really good lodges, um, you're going to learn your way around ritual. You are going to learn more about ritual than you ever thought you could know about ritual. Wow. And just because you're going through rituals, you're performing rituals, you're filling parts in rituals, you're hanging out with guys who've been doing the same ritual for 50 and 60 years and learned from people who had done it, you know, and so on. Um, Being part of a living tradition like that, you're going to learn an enormous amount. Um, I've also just, the Masons, you know, I'm sorry to say there have been exceptions, but by and large, most of the Masons that I've met are really good guys, and some of them have been among the best human beings I've ever encountered. And it's really kind of kind of humbling. You know, you meet some guy, you know, some, some old guy at a, at, at a Masonic Lodge, and you get to chatting, and you find out that, you know, for example, he doesn't walk too well anymore because he suffered frostbite um, winning the Silver Star fighting the Nazis in the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. And he's totally... Unassuming. You don't hear this from him. You hear this from one of his buddies. Yeah. Okay. Because he doesn't. Even, he doesn't talk about it. He's just. He's a. He's a perfectly nice old guy. Or you know, you meet some guy um, who has a high school education, and he's not necessarily too good with words. But you find out that he's literally devoted an hour a week for his, You know, for for some amazing period of time, doing some kind of charitable project. And you look at yourself and go, wow, okay, maybe I need to recalibrate how I'm spending my life. There's a lot of that in masonry. And <laughs> so, no, seriously, there's, you, you know, you meet, you meet the people that various branches of masonry have, like, free clinics for children of various kinds. Like, the Shriners yeah. have, have burn clinics where, you know, the children who've, who've suffered burns hey, will hey. get treatment absolutely free of charge. And mm-hmm. there are masons who will pick up kids and drive them to the nearest clinic for re- their regular appointments even when that's a four-hour drive away each way and they'll do it once a month for free they're providing yeah. gas because that's just what you do and so that's informed not only my druidry but my life because watching these guys you know it's it's really one of those humbling moments where you say okay i need to look at my choices and say am i am i living up to what i could be yeah, but so the, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the there there, there is the ritual. There's the, the 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 sort of instant friendship because you know if you're a mason, you go someplace you know as as you you instantly have a bunch of friends, yeah. and so that's that's that that has worked the one way. Druidry, um, well every. 
basic masonry to become a mason you have to believe in a supreme being but the the ground rules what we call the landmarks of the craft don't require don't tell you which one you have to believe in it's wide open and so my druid my druid faith informs my masonry in that it fills that role yeah. Where a, for a Christian Mason, you know, there, 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 there are certain prayers that are said in a Masonic meeting and so on, and they're very specifically done so they're they're non-sectarian, and so and you realize that every every guy around you is praying to a different god, <laughs> or praying to the divine in a different way if you want to express it that way, sure. and and that you know that's that's another of those interesting things. But isn't I mean isn't that kind of isn't that part of it though? Because we're yeah. each individuals and we each exactly. I mean, when you, say supreme being we each have a different concept of what that is even though mm-hmm. we're handed the same definition mm-hmm. so yeah i think that's yeah really- and that's 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 one one of the things one of the things that's really pleasant about the masonic craft is precisely that you can sit down with people who are who have completely different religious beliefs and mm-hmm. just get to know them as human beings there's so few places that you can do that especially in america today where we have all of these religious and cultural and political schisms sitting down with people who disagree with you about about some some matter religion and politics but we don't talk about that in lodge because people get into fistfights over things like that that's been true over and over again in history of course and but you get to know them as people and all of a sudden they're they're not just the caricatures that, that you get from the conventional wisdom they're human beings yeah now, for those individuals who have been doing this for 50 years, and they've been doing the mm-hmm. same rituals over and over again for mm-hmm. 50 years, mm-hmm. what is it that keeps them, what, what is it that keeps that alive for them? I mean, I would assume that someone wouldn't be able to really do that for 50 years unless they, they maintain some level of, like, legitimate passion for mm-hmm. the ritual that they were doing over and over again. Oh, yeah. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. The thing is, the more one of the things that that you'll learn from magical philosophy is that the more often a ritual is performed, if it's performed with verve, if it's performed with commitment and passion, the stronger it gets. Yes. So one of the things that that is done in, for example, in in most in most druid orders, they'll teach you some kind of basic ritual practice. In AODA, the order is to head. It's a sphere of protection ritual, and you do that every day. And if you stick with it, because a lot of people will do it for a few days or a week or a month and they drop, and okay, that's fine. They bounced off the flake filter. If you keep on doing it, the more you do it, the stronger it gets until you're yeah. getting these amazing you know, extensions of consciousness through doing the same simple ritual over and over again. The same thing happens if you're a, if you're a mason or you belong to any, any organization like this yeah. and you're going down to the lodge twice a month, let's say, and putting on you know, do, doing doing certainly the opening and closing ritual for the lodge, and maybe putting on a, an initiation degree. Um, those rituals become more powerful, more meaningful, more moving the more you do them. Wow! And so, and so, yeah. You and and the interesting thing that I've seen, and I've seen this repeatedly, not just in masonry, but in some other organizations as well. You get you get people who've been doing these things for fifty years. And they know nothing about magic as far as they know. They've never opened a book yeah. of occult philosophy. They, if you said they were practicing magic, they'd be horrified. But wow, do they raise the head of power. You can, the air crackles around them as they, as they go through this ritual that they love, that is right. meaningful to them. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a real education. Right, and transformative. And it doesn't matter what you call it. 
whether yeah. you label it one thing or another, it, it is what it is. It is yeah. what it is. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I love the way you described that. That was very beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm just I'm thinking back to some of the experiences in my own in, in my yeah, own no, it comes experience to other organizations, and it's just yeah. There's mm-hmm. there's some cool there's some seriously cool stuff out there, and and yeah. a lot of a lot of people think oh well it's just these old fuddy duddies and you know okay if that's what you, if that's what you want to think you're kind of closing the door on a very powerful experience and this, now I do have to say for for you know for the sake of completeness it's not just masonry there are a lot of the old lodges out there um some people may know of the grange which actually admits both men and women and has its own initiation rituals and things like that that's one of the places i was thinking of when i became a granger um many many years ago the 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 people who were the the officers who did the initiation ritual you know they've been doing this for for basically all their lives and it was a profoundly moving experience yeah and then there, there are others. You know, if if you ha- if you have a chance to join one of these old lodges, consider it because there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom and a lot to be learned from it. And these things used to do a lot to help build community. And one of the reasons that we basically don't have community in America these days, we've allowed all those these voluntary institutions to fall apart because mm-hmm. everyone's like, no, I don't want to spend the time. I don't want to invest. In <laughs> you know, you get back what you give in. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Now, during the break, we had kind of a mini conversation about those Dan Brown books that came out. Like, I don't even know. At this point, what was that, like 15, 20 yeah, yeah. years ago now? I don't even know. My, you know oh, I'm oh, getting I so did. old. And I guess say my, my head spinning. Was it that long? Yeah. The, yeah, but yeah I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you know, it's my, me and Linear Time. We don't get along very well. So <laughs> unless you hand me a date, it's, it's lost on me. But I'm curious, you had mentioned during this very brief mm-hmm. conversation we had that there was a really, you experienced a surge in Mason mm-hmm. in response to these uh-huh. phenomenal books. I'm just going to put that out there. They're great yeah. books. They're great. In, in re- yeah. In response to the Da Vinci Code, in there response to some of the other books. Angels um, and Demons. And, and, so on. and also the movie National Treasure. Yes. Which was which had a lot really to do with me. It was, it was fun, okay. It was fun, but the thing is, people, a young, a lot of young men, saw those and said, "Okay, that's what I've been looking for." And then beat be the path to the nearest Masonic lodge. And so there's there's a lot of lodges these days. There's more than I'd ever expect to see when, when I originally joined. That actually have a lot of young members as a result because people are hungry for that. They're tired, you know, as I was back when I was a kid. They sure. don't. They they cannot put up with a world that is as one dimensionally boring as the media yes, and exactly. the political system and the school system insist it has to be. They want mystery. They want they they want commitment. They want symbolism and metaphor. They want meaning. Yes. And and so they're you know, and if then and yeah, you can find that in the lodge. Um, and I think, the, I think mystery the, and, as well. You know yeah. there's a and not just because of the secrets, but I just mean because mm-hmm. it is a process. Mm-hmm. It is an it is an evolutionary process. And because you're running up against the limits of what you are able to know and then trying to push the right. limit further. So yeah. And so much of what we have in today's culture is fixated on the absolutely false belief that we know everything that we need to know. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I, we could talk about that one for a I'm week, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh man. Yeah. I and, just... yeah. And you, you get you get all these people who are who are totally convinced that it's their job to basically going around insisting that 
um, we know everything that matters, and that if you think there's anything outside that, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, know. these pseudo skeptic types. You know, what, uh, what I love is okay. So looking back, how many times were our you know our predecessors pretty convinced that they were right and they were wrong? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, so, yeah, yeah, it's. Yeah, and the thing, there there would be a topic for a fun conversation sometime because the example that I like to use is the way that the official opinion spins around like a weathercock on what kind of food is healthy for you. I remember when polyunsaturated fats were good for you and cholesterol was bad for you. Um, You know, every day it's like I don't. One week eggs are bad for you. Still, the next uh week they're saying don't uh eat them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, the fact of the matter is they don't know. The fact of the matter is that a lot of what's going on here is marketing. You know, yes. the egg council pays yes. for a study proving that eggs are good yes. for you. Then the beef council tries pays for a study saying eggs aren't good for you. You should get your protein from dead cows instead. And and around it goes. And yeah. unfortunately, one of the things that's happening here is that. The, the very real achievements of modern science are being drowned in a torrent of, of groupthink and, and experimental fraud and you know, pay-to-play pseudoscience um, coming from you know, distinguished figures in distinguished lab coats. <laughs> and in the meantime, there's a whole, there are whole worlds that we know nothing about. Yeah. Because nobody wants to look there, but you can't look there because that's superstitious. Well, you know, that's fine. Call All them superstitious. They're doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, how many in that big rush to masonry when those books came out? How many of those people actually proved to be truly interested in stock? Or was that just um, kind of a fad thing, and no, it kind it was, of ebbed and flowed? And there, there, there was some of that. There was some of the, there yeah. were there were people who just kind of drifted and drifted out. But the thing is, that always happens. Um, mm-hmm. People can if if somebody goes through an initiation ritual, any initiation ritual, if they're ready for it, it takes. They go places with it. If they're not, they just drift away. And sometimes yeah. you can feel it happen. Sometimes while you're doing the ritual, you can feel things kind of almost make it or there's just no response at all. And sometimes when you're lucky, you can feel it just go click and you watch the, the, the candidate's eyes just bug out briefly as, as it really sinks in. Um, but a surprisingly large number of those young guys are still around in masonry. I've yeah. met quite a few of them. And so it's, it's actually causing a certain amount of fluttering in Masonic dovecoats these days because the younger guys are much more interested in the old traditional forms than the, the, the current old guard is. Interesting. They, they want the mystery. They want the yeah. tradition. They want the lore. And, and you know, the, 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 the old guard, these are guys who preserve Mason, masonry through some very, some very difficult times. They're good men. Um, they they love the craft, the Masonic craft. They've contributed an enormous amount to them. Many of them are uncomfortable with its deeper spiritual dimensions, and you know, and that's fine. That's fine. They they have done they've done a marvelous job of keeping the craft alive, and it's the craft is not about dragging anybody into any into any depth that they're not ready for. But the fact remains that very often you get younger guys who are who are really passionate about the spiritual side of masonry and older guys saying, What the heck are you talking about? Really? 
Yeah, seriously. Um, and it, it, has, it, has caused some, it has caused some serious confusion. The thing is, every, most often, most often, everybody backs away from the edge and we work out a compromise because that's the way Masons do things. There have been some, there have been a few ugly incidents, um, you know, in a few situations where, where lodges have fallen apart or people have been driven out or what have you. But it doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, How interesting. Do you think that there's a general... I'm sorry? Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, um, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, it's just it's in it's it's one of those things, and I think one of the things is that a lot of it is we have a we have a new generation. We have several new generations coming in, and they're not like the baby boomers. They have different attitudes. They have different ideas. They are not. Um, they're less hostile to the past, mm. and. They're they're less hostile to the idea of tradition, mm-hmm. and the you know where so many people the boomer generation the idea was the past is to be cast off and I'm going to achieve nirvana myself my own way well you know, right. which is fine if that's if that's your mission but there are other ways to do it and so yeah. it's thing is it's going to work it's it's going to work itself out just fine if nothing else the ordinary process of attrition twenty thirty years from now um the those young sure. guys who came in are going to be the old guard. And right. you know we'll we'll see, and and then they'll probably be dealing with a bunch of young guys who have their own weird ideas, and it's going okay. Now I understand. <laughs> I think that's just the way it goes, right? Yeah, that's that's the magic of it. So it's interesting that you are, you know, you've been doing this long enough that you're able to kind of sit back and witness mm-hmm. this transformation happen mm-hmm. around you. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. been very, it's been very, very pleasant to watch because back. Now I was fortunate enough. Again, I joined. I, jo- I became a mason in uh, in two thousand one, and at that time there was already there were already some young people, some of the younger younger than I am, than I am, younger than I was, people trickling mm-hmm. in, um, and so I didn't have to go through the the very hard years of the sixties, seventies, and eighties where nobody was interested. Oh, really? See, there was a long period. It was un- it was it was uncool. It was square. It was you know <laughs> nobody you know it was con- it was conservative. Good heavens! And you know it was a it, there were, yeah there was a long period where nobody was interested in, in in masonry or any of the old lodges, and the old guard just had to keep on going, as even their own kids were going. I'm not interested in that crap. And mm-hmm. so it was. It was a. It was a very difficult time for a lot of people in Masonry and in a lot of the other lodge organizations too. So I was fortunate enough to get in with when there was all there are already younger people coming in. But it was really welcome to watch um, in a number of the lodges that I belonged to. You know, every 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 year you'd have more younger people coming through the initiations, getting active, getting involved, and watching it pick up and take on new life. It's it's it's. That was a lot of fun. That was very encouraging. Wow. And it's still happening. I would oh, imagine. Very much so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, at at this at this point, I I turned I turned fifty five last month, and at this point, when I go to a Masonic lodge, there's a bunch of guys that are older than I am. And then there's a bunch of guys who are younger than I am. <laughs> there's mm. there usually aren't that many of my age because I kind of fall into that <laughs> into that gap, but mm. but so so at this point as often as not especially I go to a lot that's mostly young guys you know I'm I'm being treated as, as the you know the 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 um, old and reverend geezer and going um what 
<laughs> wow. Okay, so we have let's let's go ahead and address some of these questions that are coming in from the chat room. Okay, so here is a question for you. Have you heard of the Adams calendar in South Africa? And if you have, do you think it relates to being a religious place? I have not heard of it. I have not heard of it either. I would be interested I, uh, in looking um, into it. Yeah, time. obviously that's that's something to look that's something definitely to look into. Okay. Um Kind of an aside to that, um, we are being asked about the stone circles that Michael Tellinger is investigating. Those I have heard of. Okay, have, where are, are those? You, oh, those are in South Africa as well. Um, okay. And they're stone structures on the ground, and they kind mm-hmm. of spiral out. I, I, I don't, I'm de- definitely not a, you know, knowledgeable. Okay. Yeah. And, the thing is, there are stone circles and things like that all over the world. Um, well, not quite all over the world. A lot of places in the world have standing stones, stone circles, things of that of that nature. Some of them very, very ancient. Some of them more recent. Um, there's a lot to be learned from that kind of thing, and that's definitely one of those things that I, that that's worth further investigation. Um, one of the things that I noticed in the Secret of the Temple is that there seems to have been some transmission of information from the old. Stand, traditional traditions of the people who raised the standing stones back in the Neolithic, possibly through the ancient Druids, into um, the temple tradition that I describe. Yeah. So there's, the, you know, that's definitely an angle to look for for potential, you know, new sources of information. Sure. Now, I, I'm gonna. So in the book, you brought up, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, something called the Dragon Project in the UK. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. In England. Yes. In England, okay. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? That was really interesting to me. Oh yeah, what happened? The the thing is, the England, Britain generally is covered with all kinds of ancient megalithic ruins. You've got so everyone knows about Stonehenge, okay? Stonehenge is one of like hundreds of stone circles scattered all over England. There are mounds, there are ancient trackways, there are all kinds of strange things all over the place. And one of the things that people have noticed for many, many years, going back to the Middle Ages, is that strange, certain strange things happen around them. Uh, for example, compass needles go crazy yeah. near certain standing stones. Um, there are weird sound effects at dawn and things like that. Various, various you know, strange things. Animals behave strangely. Birds behave strangely. The weather behaves strangely. And so a bunch of people in England decided to try to actually do a scientific research program, um, use, you know, borrowing, borrowing equipment, the necessary equipment to try to detect things like microwave radiation and ultrasonic waves and, very, and, and magnetic charge fields and so on. And the problem that they faced was that scientific research is not cheap. And they were having to do this on their own budget with the money they had left over after they paid their bills, um, you know, and without running themselves into debt or anything like that on their own spare time. And there were some real limits to what they can, what they could do under those conditions. They found some really interesting things, but nothing really conclusive. Now, a simple research grant of the kind that get handed out by the hundreds every year um, would have more than paid for a serious program of research. But, you know, because it's, it's you know, quote, woo-woo stuff, you won't get such a research grant. And then, of course, the skeptics think, well, you know, this has never been proved by science, therefore it can't be real. Okay, let's, let's have some objective investigation here. Let's actually see, put some <laughs> money into research. Well, no, we can't do that because there's nothing there. How do you know there's nothing there? Because it's not circular reasoning <laughs> like anything. Yeah. 
But, but the Dragon Project remains one of the few serious attempts to, to document this, the kind of earth mysteries that people have been experiencing for many years. And they did find some really strange stuff. Very weird photographs. Very, Very weird interesting photographs. photographs. Yeah. Do, you have, do you, by chance, have those on your website, or is, are they only available in the book? Um, only in the book. That's the, the, book. the Well, there um, you go. The, <laughs> you got you to get a book? The author, or I, the, the author, what I say, the publisher, the publisher bought the rights to use them for the book, but okay. I didn't get those for the website. Okay. Yeah, so Llewellyn is the publisher, and... Llewellyn's the publisher? The, they publish the about, publisher. what about, something between a third and a half of my books, so yeah. 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 I've been reading Llewellyn books since I was like, I don't know, 14, maybe. Me too. But <laughs> see? Oh, yeah. moon on the, look for the moon on the spine. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, but it, it would definitely, I mean, this is a phenomenal book now. Um, yeah, I see. I'd never, I had never all, of all of the reading that I've done. I had never once come across that project before. So your mm-hmm. book was my first introduction to that. Mm-hmm. And there are, there, there's, a, there's a couple of books that I cite in the bibliography that give a lot more detail, and I really recommend. Uh, Paul Devereaux's books in particular are really, really good um, studies mm-hmm. of the whole Earth Mysteries thing in Britain. He's, he was one of the people involved in the project, and he's written some absolutely first-rate books. Um, Nigel Pennock has some good stuff. There's lots of, again, there's stuff in the bibliography. So there's, there's enough to keep lots of people busy for a lot of time of, of you know, Looking into the looking into this yeah. this mystery that I that I think I've discovered here. Right, exactly, and like you said, you leave it pretty open ended. You make you make a lot of propositions, and you go into mm-hmm. detail to describe mm-hmm. potential outcomes. But you mm-hmm. leave these great questions that anyone who does have a really passionate interest in these things really should uh-huh. be out there doing the footwork mm-hmm. just to make these correlations and and see where we let's can find it, some answers. Let's see if it works. Yeah. You know, basically yes. it's, it's like, it's like seeking the grail, you know, uh, grab, grab, grab your horse, grab your sword, grab your helmet. Um, which way? Uh, somewhere in the wasteland. We don't know. Hey, and, and honestly, so you had mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, speaking to other people from other countries, cross languages. And the thing about language is there's so much nuance to language. Oh yeah. What, Language itself is like a treasure trove, right? Mm-hmm. All it takes mm-hmm. is talking to the right person who speaks the right language, who has the right understanding of the nuance of a word, and you, you it's like you open up Pandora's box mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. gold falls out on your lap. <laughs> so I, I, I really, I would be really curious to to hear what you have found from people who have maybe responded to your call to action. So far, what I've heard, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's not people have not made a lot of direct progress yet. I've heard I've heard some interesting things about material in Hindu traditions, because um, one, one of the, one of their they've got a lot of very very old traditions in India, and yeah. um, if you're if you're well if you're you know educated in those traditions, you you can access a lot of this stuff. And there there's material in there that bears on sacred geometry, that bears on temple construction, that bears on rituals of fertility. It's really interesting. Um, I really haven't had a chance to follow up on it in any detail, but it's definitely lively stuff and probably does bear very specifically on this. Um, to really build on that, uh, you know, there, there's the, the people I talk to are still researching it. Um, it's going to take a lot of reading texts in Sanskrit. Oh, yeah. It's definitely going to be a long, 
I guess I don't, know, I don't know Sanskrit, so that's uh, not not one I can help. I, I I read I read Latin, I read French, <laughs> and I found some interesting things in in there. And, I, and that's now now that I'm now that I'm settled in in Rhode Island um, with access to some really good libraries, we'll see what I can turn up. Yeah. Speaking of. So we're getting towards the end of the show. I want to talk a little bit. I know that, you know, before the show, we had a brief conversation. You you know, the future is wide open for you. But I'm very curious if you have any inclinations or like, are there options that you're looking at? What What is okay. in the future? Let's see what, what I'm what I'm looking at right now. Um, first of all, I mentioned earlier, I do write fiction and I'm actually working on um, I'm, I've published two volumes and have written several more of what's going to be a seven-volume fantasy series called The Weird of Hali. Um, and it's, it's very much intended as, as as much a teaching tool as anything else. But it's a lot of fun. Um, you've probably heard, you, you, everyone I imagine has heard these days of the, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, you know, Cthulhu, yeah. the tentacled horror from three weeks before the dawn right. of time. <laughs> this whole series takes Lovecraft and stands the whole Lovecraft thing on his head. The tentacle horrors, the multiracial cultists, all these people, they've been, they're the good guys all along. Interesting. Okay. They're the good guys. So this yeah. is, this is and, something you're, yeah. you're this currently is, working this on? Is, oh, this is, as I said, there, there's, there are two volumes currently in print. Um, oh. And there are, let's see, three more that I finished, and I'm working on volume six right now, and seven is about 10,000 words done, because I already know how, how the whole thing's going to end. But it's a, it, it is a long and lively, it's not, it, even though I, I mentioned Lovecraft, it's not horror. It's, it's an yeah. epic fantasy with tentacles, okay? And a significant <laughs> number of the, of the characters have tentacles, too. Um, just, one of those, yeah, just one of those things. <laughs> Yeah. But it's it's been enormous. That's been enormous fun. I'm that, but that's that's going to keep me going for a while. Um, I have w- one book that I wrote a while back um, called The Celtic Golden Dawn, which was based on work that w- one of the things that happened between the ceremonial tr- magic tradition and druidry. There were actually groups that combined those two back in the early 20th century. As far as I know, their teachings were lost, but. I'm well familiar with the Golden Dawn tradition. I'm well familiar with Druidry. So I reverse engineered the thing and came up with a complete system. There's a second volume of that currently in, in, in the works that will get much more deeply into the rituals, the symbolism, and the practices. And beyond that, my intention is to do a lot of reading. In, um, you know, now, again, now that I have access to um, some really good s- s- selections of old medieval uh, and Renaissance magical literature, I'm going to look, look at stuff. I'm going to see what grabs me next. I cannot wait to find out what grabs you. <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably have tentacles. It sounds like it might, yeah. <laughs> So how is how what is the best way for people to follow your path and okay. how to, with with what you've got going on and all of these ideas that are kind of swarming around in your head? Okay, um, I have a blog. I have a blog now at um, www.ecosophia e c o s o p h i a dot net, and that's my regular blog. And then I also have an account on Dreamwith and Ecosophia, same word dot dreamwith dot org. Um, and that's, I use that for um, little short chatty things. Those two connect to one another. And those really are the best ways to track me. Other than that, um, you know, check your favorite full-service bookstore and my full, you know, look up my full name, John Michael Greer. They've got my books. Yeah. If they're any good, they have my books. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that statement. <laughs> 
Yeah. And the next on my list, I'm going to read your UFO book. That That is definitely on my agenda. Mm-hmm. I, 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 would, I would love to have a conversation about that. So do you, would you come back and talk to me? Oh, yeah. oh, oh yes. Really? That was really one of my favorite books to write. And the research, yeah, the research process, I, I had, I, I think I must have read something like a thousand books on UFOs Wow! when I was putting that thing together. And, and the, what I ended up, fi- what I ended up finding as a result was not what I expected to find when I went in, but um, it was, it, it was an interesting story and an interesting journey. And I learned a lot. And I, I think, I really think that was one of my best books. Okay. Well, I as think a, I know. As a, I listen yeah. to that conversation. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, John Michael, it has been an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with you. It's been a long Thank time you. coming. Thank you so much for spending your Friday night with me. And, and definitely it. give my best to your wife, Sarah. She's such a sweetheart for all of that. Course I, I would agree with that, too. <laughs> Thank God for that. Mm-hmm. So, all right, everyone, that is a wrap on this episode of the Q Science Project. A huge thank you to all who tuned in and spend your Friday night hanging out with me and my guest, John Michael Greer. Also to my producer, Bill Forte, for his behind-the-scenes wizardry. Through the week, be sure to follow the Q Science Project on social media via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the Q as at Q Science across the board on social media. Be sure also to bookmark QScience.org as your most informative way to stay current on future guest and topic information. With that, wishing everyone a fantastic weekend and week ahead. I'll meet all of you back here, same bat time, same bat channel next week to do it all over again. With that, this is Jill Hansen, host of the Q Science Project on KGRAradio.com, signing off. Good night, everybody.